We've got Dick Morris on the line with us, and you all know him. He's been, he's all over TV, books, um, he's been a, you know, political strategist, uh, knows the Clintons well. Dick Morris, welcome to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, and Sue Kinfield is our guest chick, so welcome. Hey, I'm not a chick, but, uh, <laughs> but, I, was, but I was admitted to the Girls Club. Um, my book, The Fifty Shades of Politics, is a series of anecdotes in my career, and one of them is when Hillary invited me to the girls' club. <laughs> uh, it, me, it met every week in the White House solarium, and uh, it was Hillary in a sweatsuit and hair pulled back, no makeup, sneakers, no socks, and four other women who were dressed just the same, uh, Lisa Caputo, Maggie Williams, Mila uh, Bavier, and Lewis, her inner crew. And they would meet every single week during Clinton's administration uh, to plan strategy and plan what to do. And uh, at one point, the president walked in while we were meeting, and uh, I had a meeting with him after the girls' club. So I got up to go to, to meet with him, and he said, no, no, sit down, Dick, continue your meeting. I want you to finish meeting with Hillary's people. And Hillary was very possessive and saying, no, your time is to meet with me now. You can meet with him later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Dick Morris, this new book of yours, Fifty Shades of Politics, is really interesting. I was going through it, and some of the stories are fascinating. And let's just start off with, you grew up Democrat. How did you become a Republican? Yeah, well, I, I grew, you know, Fifty Shades of Politics, the name of the book, uh, is, is really the going from deep blue as a kid to purple, working for Clinton in the White House at bipartisan, to red Republican now. And uh, I think the initial move away from the Democrats was dislike of Johnson because of the war in Vietnam. But then the, as, as I began to move further, it was really impelled by Ronald Reagan's success in destroying communism. Uh, I was a big believer in fighting nuclear weapons. I was a peacenik. I went on peace marches and wanted to cut defense spending and oppose Star Wars and negotiate with the Russians. And Reagan didn't do any of the things that I wanted. And it worked. Communism collapsed. Uh, Russia went away as a, a superpower. And the threat of nuclear war went away. And not because they followed my advice, but because we won the Cold War. And uh, then I began to see, frankly, in consultation with Bill Clinton, uh, how the Democratic direct way of giving out money and grants and stuff like that was not really effective, but that the Republican way of demanding responsibility in return for aid We'll give you welfare, but you have to work for it. You have to take a job. Uh, we'll uh, give you a scholarship, but you have to agree to teach in an underserved area. And that transaction, which Clinton called the New Covenant, which was sort of the basis of his administration, really was something that was something he and I came to. It was kind of my halfway house between the parties. Then for the rest of it, it's Ronald Reagan, where he said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. It left me. And you look at the Democrats today, and they're so far off the deep end and so far left that uh, they can't possibly be part of them. 
Well, this is Sue Dick. You know, what you did back then with uh, Bill Clinton in helping people experience the dignity of work, you know, through that process doesn't seem to be part of the the approach for Democrats today. Why do you think that is? Well, I write about this a bit in the book. Whenever a liberal loses a national election to a conservative, the liberal party always moves to the left. You'd think they'd move to the center, but they don't. They move to the left. After uh, Reagan defeated Carter, uh, the next two Democratic candidates were Mondale and Dukakis. Uh, After Thatcher defeated Callahan in Britain, the next two Labor candidates, Kinnick and Foote, were way over crazy leftists. And that's what's going on now in the Democratic Party, that lurch to the left. And the reason, I think, is that the, the moderates, the sane people, leave the Democratic primary. They no longer participate. They don't see themselves as Democrats. And the true believers and the crazies dominate the party and move it so far to the left that it becomes unelectable. And that's what I think you're seeing in this Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Dali, whatever her name is, the Muslim congresswoman. They're just going crazy left. But, you know, much of this book isn't serious. Much of it is fun. Uh, Like the woman who told me that she was with Bill Clinton in 1988, and he was telling her, I don't know these women they accuse me of being with. I'm not a womanizer. This is all a Republican uh, effort to smear me. And she told her friend and told me, I got the feeling he forgot that we'd slept together. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Dick Morris, you probably more than anybody else in America know the Clintons really, really well. And you have one story about, you said, all scandals lead to Hillary. Uh, Expound upon that a bit. Well, that was really the, the, that was really what led me to move away from Hillary. Uh, I decided when I was working in the White House that all scandals I was dealing with, uh, all the fires I was having to put out, all started with Hillary. Uh, the obvious ones, uh, the Travelgate scandal, the Whitewater scandal, the Filegate scandal, the uh, every single one of those scandals, the secret uh, health care task force scandal, all of that started with Hillary. But so did the sex scandals. Uh, because Paula Jones, which was the, the root of it all, uh, offered to settle her suit uh, for no money and no apology, no admission of guilt. All she wanted to do was for Bill to say that he indeed sent a trooper to bring her up to his, his room. And she was a state employee. There could be a hundred reasons for that. And Hillary wouldn't accept the deal. Bill was, but Hillary wouldn't take it because she didn't want to admit any truth the spectator story that he was using troopers to get women. And it didn't imply that, but she thought it did. And because of her rigidity and her, her refusal to budge an inch, which always gets her in tremendous trouble, um, we had the Paula Jones suit. We had Bill was impeached. Monica Lewinsky surfaced. Uh, he had to pay a million dollars to uh, Paula Jones. Uh, he uh, lost his law license all because she wasn't flexible enough to take a settlement that made sense. And and then you look at the subsequent history. She is always getting herself into trouble. 
the reason that we had the secret email server scandal is because she wanted to keep quiet the pay-for-play stuff she was doing in the, in the Secretary of State's office. And uh, her, the entire process is one of hiding and concealment and let nobody learn what scandal is on the list. Wow. Well, hey, we have Dick Morris on the line with us. Uh, his newest book, Fifty Shades of Politics, is really interesting. Dick, we need to go to break, uh, give a couple of shouts out to some of our partners. We'll be right back. Uh, would like to ask you, you have uh, one of your vignettes in there is Saving Justice Kavanaugh. It's fascinating. Uh, this is the Americhicks with Kim Munson. Sue Kinfield is our guest chick in studio. We've got Dick Morris on the line talking about his book, Fifty Shades of Politics. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the Americhicks with Kim Munson. Sue Kinfield is in studio with us as our guest chick. We have on the line with us Dick Morris, fascinating book, Fifty Shades of Politics. Dick Morris, it is so fascinating to chat with you. This book, Fifty Shades of Politics, is <laughs> is just an amazing read. There's humor in it, and you learn a lot. Uh, but I was surprised to see what you had to say regarding saving Justice Kavanaugh. Tell us about that. Yep. Well, I was just peacefully going <clears throat> going through my emails at home, and uh, I got an email from a guy I had known vaguely and worked with briefly, and uh, he said that he had a friend who had a friend who was um, uh, Christina Beasley Ford's lover uh, and part-time roommate uh, during the 1990s and had a lot to tell me, wanted to get some information to the Judiciary Committee. So I called the friend, and then I called the friend and spoke to the guy. And um, he uh, he told me that she was a piece of work and that he had no sense that she had been sexually abused, that, in fact, uh, his, his next woman had been abused, but that she hadn't, and he hadn't had a feeling that she had. But in any case, the key thing that he told me was that she was an expert at fudging lie detector tests. Uh, getting by and passing them. Uh, her specialty was self-hypnosis, which was her, her graduate thesis, and uh, using biometrics to st- make sure that you registered a false positive on the lie detector test, and that she would often tell the story of her coaching a woman friend of hers who wanted to pass an FBI lie detector exam in order to become a federal agent, and was very nervous about that, and Christina helped her, uh, helped to, helped to with that, and helped her learn how to pass that. And um, I passed the information on to uh, Senator Ted Cruz, who was my client, who was on the House Judici- on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And uh, did I say Christina? It's Mary Beasley Floyd. I'm sorry. And um, he passed it on to uh, Grassley, who's the head of the committee, who passed it on to the FBI. And then you'll remember in that court, in that examination where they had a prosecutor question her, they asked her, uh, have you ever coached someone to pass a lie detector test? And she said no. And then uh, the FBI indicated that she had. And that lie was a very important part of undoing those crazy claims against Kavanaugh. Wow. Okay. Um, very historic. And- one of these stories in the book that I don't know if you read, but it's, it's really cool. I mean, some, a lot of it is just fun. I was working for uh, a guy named, um, well, I'll tell you a story from uh, Col- from Colorado. Okay. Do you remember Nancy Dick? Uh-huh. She used, used to be the lieutenant governor of Colorado. Uh-huh. 
and uh, she ran to the Senate, and I was working for her, and I was working with Leon Uris, uh, who the novelist who lived in Aspen. And uh, we went to a meeting at Uris's house, which was a chalet overlooking the valley in Aspen, just the most gorgeous view imaginable. And his new wife, Jill, a photographer, was sitting in the meeting right in front of the window. And Leon insisted that I sit at his desk facing Jill. He had a kind of thing going on, a macho thing with me that, you know, he should be in charge and not me. And he was more important than me and as he was and all of that. But he decided to play the game by having me sit in his chair looking at his wife. And on the edge of his desk were all kinds of pornographic photos of her. And um, I had to keep my eye up oh my. and out the window rather than looking down <laughs> to the entire meeting. <laughs> that is most curious. <laughs> that is most curious. What an interesting the display. Other one I was, the other one I was going to tell was that uh, I was hired to work for a guy named Tommy Hartnett, who was the lieutenant governor of South Carolina. And uh, he was going to run for Senate. And the Republicans had originally approached his boss, Campbell, the governor, to run. And he turned him down, so they went to Hartnett, the lieutenant governor, to run. And I was at a meeting with Tommy and Phil Graham, the head of the Senate Campaign Committee, Senator from Texas, uh, to discuss his candidacy. And at the start of the meeting, Hartnett said, Senator, I want you to know that I know that I'm not your first choice. And Graham leaned back in his chair and said in his big drawl, I'm going to tell you a story now that I have never told another living soul, and I would appreciate your discretion. So he moved closer. And he said, my wife, Wendy, was not my first choice. <laughs> Sophia Loren was my first choice, but she wasn't available, and I've had 32 wonderful years with Wendy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Now, I can't capture the accent in the book, but... <laughs> that, well done. That is funny. Um, let's see. We have just maybe about four minutes. I want to ask you one other question, and if we can get one more story, and that's great. But I saw on your website you said to tell Gillette to stop its ad campaign demeaning men. Uh, tell our yeah. listeners what you're thinking about on that. Well, I'm very proud to say that because this is a radio gig, I had to shave this morning, you know, nicely because <laughs> I want to look good on radio. And uh, naturally, I did not use a Gillette razor. I used a Harry's razor. Um, Gillette has these ads on saying that men should be the best a man can be. And it's filled with a minute and a half of photos of men bullying women, men leering at women, uh, boys fighting, uh, boys taunting each other, all kinds of stuff like that. And it says that uh, men should cut that conduct out and that men should eliminate their toxic masculinity. Well, first of all, my wife has a great expression of Irish family, who died and left you in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I just think that it is very unfair. Uh, I am not a toxic masculine, and I don't think a lot of men are. And uh, by painting with such a broad brush, uh, I think that they're doing a real disservice to men. And since this is a product used by men, I think it's particularly offensive. So on DickMorris.com, my website, I have a petition you can sign to Gillette 
to cut it out, to stop this advertising campaign. Good for you on that. So, hey, I think we've got time for one more story. And one that's so important right now is Brexit with what's going on over in Britain right now. But you you were part of that really almost at the beginning. Yes. Yeah, I was. Uh, I worked for the United Kingdom Independence Party. That was the party that uh, really sponsored Brexit. And put, I helped put them on the map. They had never gotten a large vote share, and I ran a campaign for them that got them uh, 17% of the vote, placing second ahead of the Liberal Party. And uh, that was kind of their launch. And I was wondering what slogan to use, because when you talk to these folks, everybody had their own story. The fishermen who couldn't fish because the EU wouldn't let them. The farmers who had to cut back their crops, the uh, manufacturers, the immigration, crime, all kinds of stuff. Everybody had issues with the EU. So I finally said, why don't you have a one-word slogan? No! (laughs) (laughs) Like a two-year-old would pronounce it. And the O would be the circular stars, the gold stars of the EU on the blue background with the Ghostbuster thing through it. And uh, they they succeeded. There's a wonderful story there where the EU would send an inspector to, to Ireland to count the sheep so they could allocate their subsidy. And the farmer had four paddocks. And as soon as they finished the first paddock, he'd take the sheep out and move them around to the fifth paddock <laughs> and then the sixth and the seventh so he could get multiple times the subsidy he was entitled to. And I think the inspector was counting sheep, fell asleep. <laughs> it sounds like that's truly entrepreneurship. So, hey, Dick Morris, what about Trump uh, and uh, what's going on right now? What do you? I love I love Donald Trump. Uh, I think that he is a great president. I think he's doing incredible things for the country. Uh, I think his personnel policies are a lot like ropes theaters, you know, <laughs> off with their head. Uh, but I feel that his, <laughs> but I think that he's been enormously successful. Um, I think on the wall, I think the wall is very important, and I think it's very obvious that we need it. But he should say, look, Rome wasn't built in a day, and the wall won't be built in a year. I'm at, we need about 1,400 more miles of wall. We have 200 that the Democrats built under Bill Clinton uh, in San Diego. It completely walls off the California-Mexico border. I want to build 400 more for $5 billion. They want to build 150 more for 1.6. So let's compromise on 3.3, and I'll build 250 miles of wall. And next year, I'll come back for more and for more and for more. And at the end of my eight years, the whole wall is going to be built. And I think if he does that, his base will say, well, we're getting half a loaf, and that's pretty good. And the uh, Democrats can't turn it down because they're offering money for a part of the wall. Wow. Okay, fascinating. Hey, Dick Morris, we are out of time. Thank you for joining the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. By the way, we, we should note, Madam Chicks, that you can't buy this book in a bookstore. You have to go to Amazon.com to do it. Oh, it's okay. self-published okay. so that there's no editor telling me what I can't write about the Clintons. Okay. <laughs> so it's Fifty Shades of Politics. It's Fifty Shades of Politics with Dick Morris. Thank you so much, Dick. Thank you. Okay. Sue, thank you so much for being in studio as our guest chick today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I just want to note that a watch company came out with an alternative ad to Gillette 
Agard Watch Company. So go look for that online. And how do you spell it? E-G-A-R-D. Okay, we'll look it up. So, hey, today is MLK Day, and I wanted to quote the the great uh, economist Thomas Sowell, black economist Thomas Sowell. He said, the black family survived centuries of slavery and generations of Jim Crow, but it has disintegrated in the wake of the liberals' expansion of the welfare state. So, it's 2019. Read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. God bless you. God bless America.